Welcome back to season three of the Human Experience Podcast, hosted by me, Kiara Marie. I am a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, functional nutritional therapy practitioner, and root cause protocol consultant. I'm here to share my human experience as well as have powerful conversations with the leaders in the health and wellness space. The Human Experience Podcast began because I truly believe our souls are here to experience a wide range of emotions, make mistakes, own our past traumas that led us to make them, and face our deepest fears in order to grow. The Human Experience is a conversation about self-development, conscious awareness, and normal human responses, and connecting emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual health. The Human Experience promises to deliver authenticity and diversity. The Human Experience community is a group of humans doing the work so they can live their lives to their fullest potential and are here to break intergenerational family patterns so generations to come can too. At The Human Experience, we're diving deep. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy the show. All right, Trees, I am so happy that you're here on the podcast, The Human Experience. Thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you for having me. I am just really excited to be here and talk about all things breastfeeding and postpartum. <laughs> me too. I love all things pregnancy. I, You'll hear me say this a lot on podcast episodes, but I have grown up watching Birthday. I don't know if you remember that. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was just like something I would do, like coming home from middle school. And I was just like so fascinated by it. And um, then I got sick with my chronic health symptoms. And, um, I went down a rabbit hole of information of like Mm -hmm. these things started and, you know, that just, it it exacerbated things for me in a good way. Um, so I'm really happy to have you here on the show talking about these things because I feel like our audience too would love to hear more. So my question to you is how did you first dive into this field? Yes. Yeah, so I am um, a registered nurse and um, an international board certified lactation consultant and a postpartum doula. So that's my background. And um, it took me a while to get here, though. I feel I am senior year of high school. I went to an all girls high school, so we could watch a birth video in anatomy class. And but I came home and I told my dad, like, I want to be an OBGYN, (laughs) deliver babies. And he's a doctor and he I mean, some people don't like this story, but in the kindest way possible, he was like, are you sure you want to be a doctor? He was like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I was like, oh, you know, maybe working part time, have a few kids. And he was like, just so you know, if you do four years of med school and four years of residency and, you know, and I was like, oh, you're totally right. So I shadowed a nurse midwife then and thought, okay, I'll be a nurse midwife. And so I went to nursing school. Um. And after nursing school, I just, I interviewed for labor and delivery jobs and I interviewed for NICU jobs and I only got NICU jobs um, offers. And then we moved about two years later and I still only got NICU job offers. So I was like, I guess I'm supposed to take care of babies and not, you know, labor. And then eventually when I had my own kids, I was like, yeah, I just wanted to experience childbirth. And it's not going to be my thing to guide moms through it, but I'm there afterwards for all of it. So, um, yeah, so I was a NICU nurse for like eight years, though. And then after I had my first, we had trouble breastfeeding and I had already been a breastfeeding educator by that point. And so um, I don't want to say it fell into my lap because it was still a lot of hard work to become a lactation consultant. But 
the opportunities really did kind of fall in my lap and it was just up to me to pick them up and run with it. So I did. That's awesome. Yeah. And I can kind of relate to that story of yours because I, having this fascination with pregnancy, I mm-hmm. remember telling my mom I wanted to be an OBGYN. Yeah. <laughs> babies. Like I was so in love, but um, then, you know, I started to create the path for myself and I was like, okay, yeah. Years in med school and like what would it look like for my family um mm-hmm. you know, taking place after that so decided not to go that route and ultimately it was for the best too and you know everything that kind of fell into my lap um mm-hmm. as well so that's cool we can yeah yeah I love that and I did I actually went back to my high school a few years ago to talk on career day because I feel like you don't even know all the opportunities that are out there, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I want to work with moms and babies, so I guess I need to be an OBGYN. Yeah. And there are so many other options too. So many yeah. other options. Yeah. Um, okay, so I guess the first thing on the agenda that I wanted to talk to you about, because this is the first thing that I kind of dove into when I told you I was going down that rabbit hole of information, mm-hmm. is um, creating a birth plan and like mm-hmm. what. Like, and then your side as well, like postpartum, like mm-hmm. what, I guess, I don't want to say what should that look like? Because I think everyone should have a different birth plan or, mm-hmm. uh, but what are things that are important to note and just be aware of? Yeah. And so I'm a little bit skewed on the postpartum end. I think that um, birth is super, super important, but I kind of relate it to like your wedding versus your marriage and the birth in the end, it it has implications for the rest of your life and baby's life, but it's still only one day. In postpartum and parenthood, it's the rest of your life. And so um, I am really big on, it doesn't need to be a written postpartum plan, but it's really hard for us, especially in our culture, to think past um, the birth. We just don't think past the birth. And um, social media is either like, postpartum is a hot mess or postpartum is like blissful and there's not really an accurate portrayal of kind of the messy middle and so I do think it's good to talk about postpartum with your partner um talk about it with your friends that have had babies um you know if it, if you have the resources I think postpartum doulas are great too because they can walk you through those things like you just don't know what you don't know I mean when it comes to postpartum. That's so true. And this is kind of like all new to me as well. Like you mm-hmm. said, it's such an emphasis on like preconception, especially with the women that I yeah. say like preconception yeah. is important. And, but I've never really paid attention to postpartum. And this is really mm-hmm. turning because you're right. It is the rest of your life. Um, yeah. I've kind of dove in, into like how I would want to like raise my children and stuff, but mm-hmm. I guess that, that nurturing part af- right after giving birth is really important. Yeah. Um, a, having a doula, I'm sure, like just having someone guide you like every step of the way is just yeah. So- yeah, and doulas aren't necessary. I mean, doulas really are doing what culturally our moms and sisters would have done, you know, two generations ago, three generations ago. And um, we've kind of lost that somewhere along the way. <laughs> Why do you think that we've lost it? Is it just because of like, you know, convenience or what is it? It's funny. I was just talking to my husband about this last night. And I think some of it, 
I don't know how to say it in a culturally appropriate way. Um, I think that being in America, we've lost a little bit of a sense of tribalism, you know, and I, I don't know if that sounds bad, but um, we've all left, you know, hundreds of years of culture, you know, America's not that old. <laughs> um, and you've had to kind of go it alone. And there are lots of pros to that. But I think that there are some cons to that, too. When you look at cultural postpartum care, there are a lot of really long established traditions and, and we are not um, surrounded by those things anymore. So I think that's part of it. And then, you know, the American dream where you're back at work at, you know, six weeks and wow, functioning like nothing happened. I mean, it's just not super realistic. Wow. So. Those are points that you make. Um, yeah. I do think there are a lot of different factors playing into that, but I love the two mm. that you up and like all of the advancements that we have made um, and have evolved into, like, I mean, just the modern society in general mm. like, um, is definitely contributing to that. Um, mm -hmm. But I think whoever is aware of that will come to find that you know, there are other methods and it doesn't have to be that, you know, going back to work after six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine what that's like. Is I mean, a good number of moms go back at two weeks even. And I just like, that's just not okay. <laughs> yeah. Recommended like recovery time, would you say? Oh, easily 12 weeks. And that's kind of the max that most employers will give you in the United States. So my cousin just delivered in the UK and you know, there are pros and cons to that, but she's like, my job is secure for a year. And, and for a year, my only job is to be at home taking care of my baby. Is there maternal, a paternal leave now, like for dads? Oh gosh. You know, I have not, I've heard rumors about that. And I think it's still basically a company to company thing. I, I honestly don't know what the most recent legislature is on that. I don't think that there is anything right at this very moment. Um, I know some large companies are getting a little bit more in tune with that. Like you have an extra week or an extra two weeks in addition to your sick leave um, for paternity leave. So uh, the, the awareness is coming back. Like I, I can tell, I mean, and as Americans, we need to reformulate a new culture around postpartum mothers. You know, it's not like we have to do things the way we've always done them, but um, we do need to bring some of that Absolutely. back. Yeah. yeah. So going um, to your lactation expertise, yeah, um, I see so many moms struggle with, you know, having their baby latch on right after uh, giving birth. Why does this happen with some babies and others not so much? Is there a reason? Yeah, I I don't know if you could pin down um, statistically, you know, but in my experience um, in the hospital, in the postpartum unit, a lot of it has to do with um, birth stress and how stressed out the baby is, how overstimulated the baby is, and how stressed out or overstimulated or... Um, over medicated the mom is regardless of whether it's pain medicine or um 
like magnesium is something they give to a lot of moms who were in preterm labor or had high blood pressure. And that really makes you pretty woozy. Um, and so, so some of it's that, you know, everybody's just a little bit low key distressed, but, um, some of it is, uh, just the, again, that lack of, you haven't seen somebody breastfeed before you haven't, um, had a sister or a mom who can step in and do that. And, and you're just going off of like what you see in the movies, you know, this long shot of like holding this baby and cradle hold. And I always tell moms, it's really, um, it's, it's the most natural thing in the world, but that doesn't mean it's the easiest thing in the world. And um, a large percentage of them, it's like, let's just work on these positioning cues and, and then they're like, oh, okay, that's a lot easier and we're good to go. But there are definitely other babies that um, certain birth interventions just really mess with their cranial nerves and their reflexes. And it takes some time to overcome those kind of things. And these aren't even birth injuries. These are just birth interventions, whether it was, and, you know, sometimes things happen. but. But babies who um, had extremely long labor, or extremely short labor, um, Pitocin, uh, vacuum or forceps, which most doctors are getting away from now in most hospitals, um, C-sections. I mean, those all interrupt the, the baby's movements and specific ways that they participate in birth. And... Um, that's how their nervous system integrates to this massive change. And if you interrupt that, it, it takes a while to get it back. You can get it back, but it's hard. That was going to be my next question. Like yeah. if you had to have those interventions, like you said, mm -hmm. yeah. um, like baby is able to latch on with maybe like the help of a lactation consultant. So what would like yeah. this look like and how long would that take to get that back? Yeah, for a lot of babies, simply putting them skin to skin, dimming the lights, um, and really just keeping a womb-like environment in the room um, can be enough, you know, and, and proper positioning. And then, you know, that's where we're at. And a few days of that kind of thing can help them regulate their nervous system and kind of catch up to whatever got interrupted. Um, in bigger circumstances, there are um, like physical therapists who specialize in working with infants and um, there are chiropractors and craniosacral therapy and things like that for these babies that are still just, um, some babies are like under-regulated almost and they're the ones who are just asleep at the breast all the time and they're just like so tired and so flappy and then some babies are kind of over-regulating and they're crying all the time and they're stiff and they're arching and you like, put the breast right here and they're like flailing around like they don't know where it is. And <laughs> so those kind of babies body work or even just something like infant massage can help too. Infant massage? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's a whole specialty. Some NICUs actually have infant massage therapists and, um, and I honestly only know the straight up basics of it, but, um, 
a PT that we saw for my son even just gave me a super basic technique of babies who are um, like more rigid and more tense. If you massage, like you start maybe at their armpits and you massage outwards towards their hand and mm -hmm. you like start on their thighs and massage down towards their feet, it can help loosen them up. Whereas babies who are really floppy and sleepy, you actually do the opposite. You would start at the hands and work towards the trunk. Yeah. So the world of body work was new to me. And I thought, I think coming, especially coming from the NICU, the hospital, it's like this stuff is crazy. <laughs> But I've seen it really make a big difference in my own kids and then in um, babies with feeding difficulties that, like, I can't fix. You know, there's a point where you're only as good as your next referral. And I'm right. like, Here, here's this physical therapist that I really trust, and it can do wonders with breastfeeding, even though it seems like it's not related. I... I'm so curious. Did you have feeding difficulties with your children at all? Yeah, I did. My son, uh, my son is six and he had a posterior tongue tie, but I didn't know that at first. And I just, I was in this NICU nurse mindset of like, if I just follow all the rules, everything will work you know a plus b equals c so it's like i feed him every three hours around the clock he was a slow eater so i remember i mean and he was colicky so i felt like he slept for eight hours a day which was way not enough for a newborn he ate for eight hours a day which was a full-time job and then he cried for eight hours a day and i was like what am i doing wrong you know and um he was gaining weight so with new moms, we send them home and we're like, this is, we expect them to lose weight, um, not more than 10% of their birth weight. And then we expect them to start gaining. And usually by about two weeks, babies should be back to their birth weight. Um, and then there's a little formula for pooping and peeing. Like you wanna, the first week of life, however old the baby is, that's how many wet diapers you need. Um, so if they're like five days old, they need five wet diapers that day. Um, so their intake and therefore output gradually increases as your milk supply increases over the first week. So, so I was like checking all these boxes. I'm like, okay, he peed three times today, you know, he, and they have to poop because there's this myth that breastfed babies don't need to poop every day. And that's a whole different thing. But, um, so I was like, he was meeting all these bare minimum requirements, but he wasn't back up to birth weight till at two weeks. And so, yeah that's a long way of saying yes we had difficulties and it was a long and winding path i had to do the whole pumping and feeding him what i pumped and putting him to the breast and um all of that for a few weeks and um he eventually got the hang of it and we had his tongue tie revised when he was two and a half actually so we made it work um and then he was just having some specific issues with solids that we finally decided to revise and I'm like oh I should have done this way sooner <laughs> you know but and then my daughter had a tongue tie revision but I kind of knew what to do at that point so yeah oh wow yeah. and I it was like just you know more stress on you as well yeah like, trying to breastfeed and um the whole thing was just probably really stressful. What yes. is, can you explain a tongue tie and like what that is? Yeah, yeah. So um, everybody has a frenulum that attaches like the bottom of their tongue to the floor of their mouth. Everybody has it. And um, 
it should be flexible and far back enough that you can like open your jaw and touch the roof of your mouth at the same time. Um, and every time I tell parents this in the hospital, half the time one of the parents can't do it. And I'm like, that's where your baby got it. You know, um, it tends to be a little bit hereditary. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there are vastly varying degrees of it. Um, you know, how far forward it comes on the tongue, um, how elastic that tissue is, how thick the tissue is. There's actually a whole assessment tool for kind of evaluating the functioning because it, it matters how it looks, but then it also matters how the baby's compensating. Um, you know, like, can they stick their tongue out? Um, can they lift their tongue up? Can they move it side to side? Can they curl it? Like all of those things are um, important. And some babies can have a degree of tongue tie and have really good functioning. And that's the best case scenario. But um, the babies that don't have a hard time feeding, either they're slow to gain weight or mom's having a lot of nipple damage and pain. So, yeah. So how does it impact their weight gain? Um, so to eat effectively, babies need to apply just a little bit of suction to keep the breast in their mouth. And then they mostly move milk actually by compression. So they're like elevating their tongue and pulling. And so if that range of motion is restricted, so like imagine you like put a resistance band on your arm and you're trying to like lift it, you know, it's like you can move it, but you're you know, you're probably pulling at your neck more or like just you're compensating. And it's kind of the same with a tongue tie or a tethered oral tie or oral restriction, whatever you want to call it. Um, so they're not feeding as efficiently as they could. And so while they might be squeezing some milk out, they're using more energy um, to do so. And it's less effective. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Wow. Um, and is this common? You know, I think so. I've been a lactation consultant for five years. And some days at the, when I was at the hospital, I'm in private practice now, but at the hospital, I would ask my colleagues, like, is that I feel like the first five babies I saw this morning were all tongue tied. <laughs> like, is this getting more common? Because two of my colleagues were amazing and they'd been there for 30 years. And I said, is this more common or are we just more aware of it? And they were like, unofficially, I feel like it's more common. Um, there, it's becoming a lot more widely known and more widely studied, really even since I had my son six years ago. Like the research is starting to really grow. Um, some of it's hereditary, but there are a lot of theories about it being nutritional too. Some people, think it's a lack of folate or, you know, taking folic acid instead of folate. Um, or part of me wonders too, like Weston A. Price talks about vitamin K um, and jaw size and high palate. And all of those often come along with tongue ties too. And it's hard to know if it's cause and effect. Like is the palate high because the tongue wasn't resting on it for the last eight months? Or is it all happening at the same time so and and there isn't an answer for that yet yeah but, and could it be like all of them too you know oh yeah yeah I think so yeah absolutely 
Um, so when it comes to newborns and feeding them and, you know, I, there's just so much information out there, like should your baby be on an eating schedule or like, what does that look like, you know, after they're born? Yeah, I am, um, super not into scheduling. I think I learned that the hard way in the NICU. It's like, um, you're going to feed this baby. 37 milliliters every three hours and like i mean it's just very regimented and so going home and just like putting this baby to the breast and not knowing how much he was actually eating was really hard for me um but also how do you even measure that (laughs) yeah i mean at home you don't you know and yeah and so um it, it was hard to kind of learn i had to learn my maternal intuition but um they really should eat eight to 12 times a day, which is really hard to swallow, like no pun intended. But I remind moms that honestly, having a newborn is hard either way. And there is a point where, yes, if you switch to all bottles, um, your partner could do some night feedings, but like the babies need to eat frequently early on, no matter what. And it's just, it's overwhelming. Even if you were sleep deprived at the end of pregnancy and you're like, I mean, it's just different when a newborn wakes you up (laughs) needing to eat. So um, yeah, so you need to feed them at least every three to four hours or eight to 12 times a day. And um, I tell moms that until the baby is back to birth weight, you do need to be waking them up at night because they're not always trustworthy. (laughs) You know, sometimes a baby's sleepy because they're um, conserving energy versus because they're full and so um is that so, um a dream feed like a- um well that yeah i mean probably not a lot of newborns will dream feed when they get older a dream feeding is like i put my baby to bed at eight and then before i go to bed at 10 i'm just gonna grab them pop them on put them back down yeah, that's a dream feed. That's harder to do with a newborn. Yeah. So um, yeah, if they're not awake at night, you need to wake them up and feed them until they're back to birth weight. And then you can kind of trust their cues a little bit more if they want to go longer at night. But it, it, I mean, it really is a full-time job at first, just feeding a baby. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And how do you feel about, um, you know, since they do need to feed often, how do you feel about co-sleeping? Yeah, I was super against it with my first because <laughs> um, I was like, that's so irresponsible. It's so dangerous. And um, also, though, my first was not super snuggly and he still to this day, like he just wants his own space to go to sleep. And so having my second was eye opening because she if she could have like velcroed herself onto me. She would have, you know, and so um then I learned about the Safe Sleep 7. Have you heard of those? Yeah. Um, so Dr. McKenna is a sleep researcher, and uh, he just came out with a new book in the last year or two. Um, I can send you a link to it for the show notes, but um, I'm going to butcher these without looking at them. But the Safe Sleep 7 involves like um, no pillows or blankets. The baby isn't swaddled. Um, neither parents are under the influence of anything like drugs or alcohol or even like Benadryl, you know. Um, so there are seven guidelines for safe sleep that um, 
if somebody's going to co-sleep, I really recommend those. And they're backed by research and really, really helpful for me. Um, I'm online yeah. right now. And it says, smoking yeah. in the home or outside, mm-hmm. over parents, no alcohol, nursing mother day and night, a healthy mm-hmm. term, baby on back, no swaddle, and a safe surface. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no extra blankets, no toys, no heavy covers. Uh, pack the cracks and yeah so that is super helpful I, I've never yeah. heard of it. I will link that book um, yeah. anyone who's interested um okay cool so on the topic of milk um I want to talk about human milk and I'll just let you take the floor and how that different yeah. <laughs> than the milk of other man- mammals yeah so I think this is super interesting because we just, especially when you're tempted to want to schedule a baby and be like, this baby who's X months old should be able to sleep through the night without eating or things like that. And um, so different, and I'm just a nerd, so I like talking about these things, but it just fascinated me. Like different mammals have drastically different milk. Um, so like mammals like seals or even rabbits like they leave their babies for long amounts of time during the day and so their milk is way higher in fat and protein because it has to last longer um and then also as a species they're born way more mature you've probably heard that human babies really we talk about the fourth trimester because human babies are born before their brains are necessarily ready to be born um so they can fit through the birth canal you know and so um human baby so like a baby cow grows a lot of muscle really fast but a baby human grows a lot of brain tissue really fast and so the milks are going to look really different and the frequency of feeding is going to look different because of it so um i just found that fascinating because i remember looking my kiddos have food allergies too and i remember being like which milk is actually closest to human milk because they could tolerate human milk and they couldn't tolerate cow's milk. But I'm like, you know, so many people had opinions about things in between that. And so I kind of did that deep dive, like what, you know. Um, So our milk is actually the highest in sugar out of any. um, Yeah, because sugar makes the brain grow and it makes the nervous system work. And it's just really fascinating in our carb centric, you know, low carb centric culture. I'm like, actually you need sugar. So oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And I think this is really important when it pertains to preconception and making sure mm-hmm. that bring all nutrients. Including mm-hmm. um, yeah. I like to emphasize, you know, it's importance with when I'm working with women and how it affects the metabolism and now linking it to our conversation and how it would affect milk supply. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Mothers struggling with, you know, low milk supply and like, or like the milk just never really came in that much. So they just switched to bottle or, you know, a formula or just, you know, made their own formula at home. Um, we Mm -hmm. we can talk about too, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, um, I meant to look it up. There is a condition called insufficient glandular tissue that like these moms 
something like one to three percent of moms like truly legitimately can never make enough milk um and the rest of us have the potential to have a full milk supply but um the first i tend to tell moms the milk you remove in the first six months programs your milk or the first sorry the milk you remove in the first six days programs your milk supply for the next six months because um prolactin the hormone that causes you to lactate um actually lowers as your breastfeeding journey continues even though your supply doesn't so what happens is in the first week of breastfeeding frequent milk removal actually establishes prolactin receptors and so your long-term supply is based on this the number and the sensitivity of prolactin receptors more than your prolactin level so we'll get moms and honestly myself included at four months was like oh my gosh my supply is starting to drop um do do I need a prescription medicine to increase my prolactin levels? And and we made it through without that, but it was a constant stressor to me. And my son wasn't removing milk effectively in the first two weeks, you know? And so I I had settled at this like barely just enough milk supply. And you can correct it a little bit, but the longer you wait, the harder it is. Um, so we all have that potential, but it's why, you know, of course, my soapbox breastfeeding education is so important during pregnancy, because if you wait till so many moms are like, I'll, I'm just going to tough it out. I'll just do this and that. And the other thing that the Internet told me, and then they come to me at like three months and it's really hard to get back on course at that point. So my understanding of lack of milk coming in um would be that there's one, a lot of stress in mm. mom's life in some fashion, right? And when, when mm. I, I, I always like to come back to stress, even as much as we don't want to hear it, because any underlying imbalance that we experience in our bodies is going to come back to stress. And mm -hmm. like, what does preconception look like for you? And what did you know your life prior to preconception look like like were you actually effectively managing those stressors improving your stress response beforehand um was there uh, some sort of trauma like during pregnancy or was there a miscarriage beforehand and seeing the ultrasound um when you finally got pregnant did that bring about some ptsd like <clears throat> there are so many different forms of stress um and then of course I mean, not eating enough is also a stressor. Mm -hmm. And I don't think a lot of women know, because I know there's a lot of back and forth in the, um, I don't know, health and wellness space. Like you don't need to eat as much um, as you think when you are carrying a baby. Mm -hmm. Where I was, whereas I would say, you know, you definitely should be supporting your body and your baby's growth um, during pregnancy. So caloric intake does need to increase. You need to make sure that I mean, breastfeeding is stressful. Um, birth is stressful as beautiful as they are. Um, so I think all of that definitely plays a role in, you know, milk supply, um, coming in. And then I, I find it hard to like women, um, in postpartum, I don't know if you've seen this, but, um, if they don't have meals prepared or if they don't have someone help meals or there's, some sort of support there, it's hard for them to like get away and make a meal for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. 
So they might not be eating as much there either. Yes. Um, you can speak to that. Yeah. And that's a big thing. And honestly, even the stress is something I'm learning in my own life now, because you get to this point where I'm like, okay, I'm finally, I think I'm doing everything right. And it's like the last box is that stress level, you know? <laughs> and so on the one hand, it's like, okay, nothing is drastically wrong with me. I'm my own worst enemy, you know, <laughs> when it comes down to it. Um, yeah, the stress is huge. And I think um, going into postpartum, it's a big shift from like this, maybe happy, like you look so cute, you have this baby belly and then you deliver and everybody's paying attention to the baby and nobody's paying attention to you anymore. And it is, it's a big shift. And then, yeah, you're running on less sleep. You're running on less food um, for sure. With my first, I didn't really have, I think I had a few freezer meals. Um, but here, I mean, we bought a house in our third trimester. We renovated while I was pregnant. Like I was hanging drywall at 34 weeks pregnant. It was horribly stressful. Yeah. And so I'm sure that that played into, I mean, my labor and delivery with him was wonderful, but then I went home he was two weeks early, so I, I hadn't even set up his nursery, you know, like all of those things definitely can impact your postpartum and breastfeeding experience. And um, freezer meals are like the kindest thing you can do for yourself in the third trimester. I mean, have a bunch of frozen bone broth, um, make 10 freezer meals, have really quick and easy lunches because you do, you, you, you maybe think you're eating more than you are because maybe at the end of the day you're just like oh my gosh i'm ravenous i need to eat a whole bunch of stuff at once and you feel like you ate too much and that's just almost never true wow. yeah and then cortisol i mean you know that cortisol and progesterone compete but um cortisol and oxytocin do too. So oxytocin is the hormone, you know, it's like the love hormone, the connection hormone, but it's also the hormone that causes letdown. So prolactin um, and other hormones monitor your supply, but ox the oxytocin release is what causes a letdown. And so if your letdown is diminished, it will eventually affect your um, milk supply because milk production is a supply and demand equation. So I know if I was really stressed, um, like, I feel like I can say this because my in-laws will never listen to this, but if they were in my house I, and I like went to go pump, I couldn't pump. Like I just couldn't pump. The milk was there and it wouldn't come out. Or if I was at work and it was a really stressful day and I was like, I gotta go pump and like I couldn't, the milk wouldn't come out. So those kind of things definitely, um, you know, and all the herbs in the world aren't going to undo that. Yeah. <laughs> and then it becomes a vicious cycle. Yeah. That is so crazy. I mean, it's like uh, your body knows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gladly as you want it, want to tell it otherwise. Um, mm -hmm. I guess your body just didn't feel safe. Like if, yeah. if right? like kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to talk yourself out of that. <laughs> and then you're like, but I got to make milk. My baby needs to eat. And it just makes it worse. Yeah. I had no idea about the oxytocin letdown. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And when we talk about prolactin, I also see a lot of um, women who are breastfeeding their children until they're like two-ish, 
years old mm-hmm. and um, prolactin is still really high because they're best. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they want to get their prolactin levels down um, because yes, it is a stress hormone um, mm-hmm. and this has a lot of like hair fallout and stuff, but um, yes. I'm so curious. So like in order for the prolactin to come down, would they just need to stop breastfeeding or like, because you had mentioned earlier that it does start to naturally decrease. Right? Yes. Yeah, I know. I'm trying. I'm like, I have a little note card here with the actual numbers on it, but it decreases fairly significantly um, because, like I said, it's about the number of receptors and the sensitivity of those receptors. Um, you know, you can I mean, I think it don't quote me on this, but I think it goes from like something like 110 at delivery and then something like 20 or 30 can maintain the milk supply. So it does drop a lot. Um, but this was one of the things that I did do a deep dive into as I was studying for my board exam because I had a lot of um, I had a lot of postpartum anxiety with my son. I had um, a really wonderful birth, but I think I had some pre-existing hip issues that suddenly were really exacerbated by delivery, and so I was in a lot of pain and um, you know, and those things feed off of each other and. Uh, everybody was like, you got to stop breastfeeding, you got to stop breastfeeding. And I was like, listen, this is the one thing that I'm doing right. (laughs) It's the only time my son and I are able to like relax around each other. Like, uh, I don't know if that's the answer. And I'm glad I kept digging because I don't think it was the answer. Um, I, and think certain things like relaxin is also um, elevated while you're uh, breastfeeding too. And so you do maintain this semi-inflammatory state while you're breastfeeding and if everything else is going well that's fine and normal and healthy um i did breastfeed both of my kids for over two years and um i i didn't have a huge break between the first two but my daughter has been weaned for a year now and now i can really confirm that breastfeeding wasn't my problem other things were my problem you know um, like not eating enough, not eating consistently enough, um, eating inflammatory foods, like polyunsaturated fats. I mean, those kind of things have made, I wish I'd known about those when I was breastfeeding and in the depths of like this depleted state because breastfeeding wasn't the problem. The rest of my life was the problem. So, Yeah. I I get that question all the time and I wasn't sure if I could give them a concrete answer, but I love that it's just, it's an audit of your lifestyle of your Mm. and before, cause yeah, breastfeeding is so beautiful and I would want to breastfeed my children for as long as I can as well. And Mm -hmm. I think that is liquid gold. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and, and it is helpful to have a practitioner who will test your prolactin levels for sure, because maybe they are way elevated, or maybe you are taking a bunch of herbs kind of willy nilly that have increased your prolactin levels or, um, you know, so it could still be way higher than it needs to be, but yeah, you will maintain a certain level of, of baseline prolactin but it's not nearly as high as it is immediately postpartum. Got it. Yeah. I have a few rapid fire questions for you, if you know the answer. Um, 
What should a mom do if she experiences mastitis? Mm, yeah. Um, I would call a lactation consultant and your OB provider right away. Um, sometimes mastitis could be um, overdiagnosed and it might really be a clogged duct or um, something like just simple. Um, mastitis is there's this spectrum of like physiological engorgement when your milk's coming in or it's been too long between feedings and then there's like this pathological engorgement stage where everything's red and inflamed but there might not be an infection and then there's this mastitis stage where then there is inflammation infection leaky vessels um you i know there are some lactation consults out there that'll be like you don't need antibiotics for that but if you're at the point where you have body aches chills fever like just get on the antibiotics for it because untreated mastitis can lead to um like abscesses <laughs> and mm -hmm. i mean you just i am super anti-antibiotics because i've been hospitalized for having too many antibiotics so for me to say that that's one of the few things that i would be like take the antibiotics if it's true mastitis but you do want to see somebody in person and make sure that that's what it is because engorgement and clogged ducts can be treated without antibiotics absolutely so yeah and is that kind of like the final stage like if it goes untreated can it reach mastitis like hopefully before uh -huh. it mastitis like mom would have done something about it kind of deal yeah generally that was my experience i've never had mastitis but i did have a few times where it got up to like the oh this is red or inflamed or bumpy and we got to deal with it um some moms for whatever reason seem to be more susceptible to mastitis um and they really will just wake up feeling oh. like death yeah um most moms yeah there is a spectrum and knowing about it beforehand can help you prevent you know needing antibiotics yeah, yeah. Um, can we talk about birth weight um yeah <laughs> i was a really big baby i was okay. like nine pounds um my okay. brother was 10 pounds okay normal like i'm just so curious if, as, as to like why that is and i i've heard normal is like around like seven pounds but i don't yeah. know I honestly don't know what the actual statistical average is. I feel like anecdotally between seven and nine pounds is most of the babies, the full-term babies that I see in the hospital. Um, interestingly, birth center and home birth center babies tend to, or home birth babies tend to be bigger. I don't know why. Like I truly, I don't know why. Um, I would guess it's because more of them go to 40, 41 weeks, but I honestly don't know. I used to work at a birth center and, and they screened for gestational diabetes and all, of, but like their babies were consistently bigger. It was just kind of bizarre. Um, yeah. That's yeah. something that I, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say scary, but I, I want to have um, a birth center or home birth yeah. kind of and hearing that babies are bigger I'm like oh yeah, you know and that's I I honestly I don't know why that was and I don't know I wouldn't trust my numbers yeah. <laughs> I think also keep in mind I was a NICU nurse for so long too that I'm like there are so many teeny tiny babies in my mind but um I mean I delivered with 
a midwife with my first two and my babies were in the seven pound range. So <laughs> it's not. Um, I have heard that eight pounds is a magical number though for feeding. Um, babies tend to be better eaters in the eight or nine pound range, which is like rougher on your pelvic floor, but maybe easier on your um, and I, again, these are just anecdotal things, but um, over 10 pounds, you get questionable, like what was mom's, what were mom's blood sugar levels like? Um, if mom has diabetes or even pre-diabetes, gestational diabetes, or even just unstable blood pressure, her insulin is really high, which is appropriate. It's doing what it needs to do, but baby is born with those high levels of insulin and suddenly it's cut off from its food supply. So those babies can have blood sugars that drop quickly. So mm. we do sometimes have to supplement babies that are over 10 pounds just simply for those reasons. But supplementation can be as easy as hand expressing a few drops and feeding it to the baby on a spoon. It doesn't mean formula right away, but yeah. Good to know. Um, yeah. What about the umbilical cord? Um, I don't think a lot of people know about this, but they have the option to do delayed cord clamping, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and thankfully it's becoming a more widespread practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even in the hospital where um, even with OBGYNs, not just midwives. So it is becoming a standard of care, but I'm not gonna say that people um, don't get into their habits and routines. And um, if you're delivering in that um, environment, it's good to have somebody else to be like, remember, we just want to, we want to delay the cord clamping a little bit. Um, and I know there's a lot of talk about iron overload, but babies um, need iron because there's not a lot of iron in breast milk for a reason, right? Because iron feeds pathogens. Most of the iron in breast milk is lactoferrin, which is iron and also um, like a macrophage at the same time, like it helps prevent infection. Um, and so babies are getting the iron stores that they need for growth and brain development via the placenta because that's their blood too. And so delayed cord clamping, the babies have higher levels, or I, sh I guess I should say lower levels of anemia between four and six months if you do delayed cord clamping. And that's a good thing because they don't really start solids until around six months. So wow. yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I didn't know that about the whole iron thing. And that yeah. makes Yes. Yeah. It, um, in the NICU, there's a lot of iron supplementation because so much of baby's iron stores are downloaded in the third trimester. Um, and so, you do need iron to grow, but it's better if you just got it via, you know, placental blood transfusion, so to speak, than to try to absorb it through your intestines when they're that immature. Yeah, because mom's need for iron goes up in the third trimester. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, because it's just going to the baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I see a lot of iron supplementation being handed um what would you recommend instead um well oh, that's so hard if if a baby that's hard because if they're premature i don't have a better option <laughs> um if they're full term 
I think that you can talk with your pediatrician about early introduction of things like broths or pureed meats um, after four or five months if iron is an issue. Uh, and then definitely avoiding, and I did this when I made this mistake with my first is, I was like, oh, rice cereal is fortified with iron. Um, and he was a little bit anemic, even though we did delayed cord clamping, he was on reflux medicine, which is a whole different podcast episode, <laughs> but it affects how you absorb a lot of nutrients, including iron and, and you know, you can talk a lot about ferritin levels and stuff, but there's some research to suggest that babies with low ferritin levels are not um, sleeping super well. And that was like my case. So I was like, okay, I got to get my kid iron. And I was giving him fortified cereal, which, you know, the phytates affect absorption of nutrients. And then that iron isn't easily absorbed. And so I'm like, okay, next time around, <laughs> we introduced meat and egg yolks and things like that first. That's awesome. So, yeah. Food first. Um, yes. Unfortified food first. first. Yes. Yes. Um, what about giving a baby a pacifier um, later on? How do you feel about pacifiers? Yeah. You know, I am maybe in the minority of lactation consultants in that I'm not super anti-pacifier. Um, what I have found over and over again in my own situation and others is that pacifiers are a symptom of breastfeeding problems and not a cause of breastfeeding problems. Like babies are smart. They don't get nipple confusion. Um, what they get with early and possibly overuse of, of bottle feeding is flow preference. So if you're holding a baby on its back and pouring a bottle in their mouth, um, unless you're using a slow flow nipple, you're essentially like making the baby do a keg stand. Like they're just going to keep swallowing so they can breathe and they're eating way more than they need to way too fast. But they're also smart and they're like, well, this is just easier. I don't have to work. You're just going to pour this milk on my mouth. Um, whereas if breastfeeding has been difficult, you know, I'm like, babies are way smarter than a lot of our terminology gives them credit for. So I think flow confusion is different than nipple confusion. Nipple confusion is rare, but a baby with early pacifier exposure is probably not eating enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I'm like, I'm fine with pacifiers. If you have a reflexy baby, it helps them swallow some of that stuff back down. If um, pacifiers do reduce the risk of SIDS if you put your baby to bed with a pacifier. But um, I tell moms to always feed first. You know, if it's the middle of the night and you fed your baby an hour ago, like I get it, it's horrible, but feed your baby first instead of popping a pacifier in their mouth. So the problem with early introduction is more the skipping feedings than the pacifier itself. Awesome. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, Therese, do you have any tips for moms if they are struggling with anything <laughs> that we've discussed today yes. and like where to start and what your best resources are? Yeah, so um, I think if you're, if you're struggling to latch your baby, you wanna feed the baby, you wanna protect the milk supply and you wanna promote bonding and generally, um, you do need outside support to do, make sure you're doing all those things without overwhelming yourself. So um, honestly, prenatally, ask your provider who they recommend for um, a lactation consultant, take a breastfeeding class, um, and then 
for straight up resources, I really like The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding. It's um, a book that the lactation or the La Leche League put out. It's really helpful um, and it's it's kind of topical. So you can read through it based on your baby's age or based on things like mastitis or cracked nipples. And you can kind of, it's a really good reference book for moms. Um, and then The Nursing Mother's Herbal is a really good book. Um, I'm really, really not a fan of supplementing willy-nilly, you know, without um, somebody guiding you in that. Um, I think that that industry is maybe a little bit preying on moms like me who are worried about their breast supply, <laughs> breast milk supply. But um, the Nursing Mother's Herbal is really helpful um, to have on hand as a reference as well. And then um, kellymom.com is um, a really uh, well-known breastfeeding site that, again, you can just search on things by subject and it'll give you a pretty concise overview of like all of your options. So. Okay, cool. I, yeah. I'm sorry, we'll definitely put those in the show notes along with yeah. the book you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, do you work with moms like postpartum for like nutrition as well? Or is that just like standard recommendations? I don't. We often end up, I mean, I'm, I'm a registered nurse and I'm an IBCLC. So there's a lot of, and I'm a mom, right? Like, so we end up talking a lot about it. I don't know that it's strictly within my scope of practice to like do one-on-one -on -one nutritional work but it often ends up being a lot of the things we just talked about like they're not it's not prescriptive advice but i i talk to moms a lot about paying attention to how you feel like are you really tired are you getting hangry all the time like those things i feel very comfortable yeah. talking about and working on um but no i don't do maternal nutritional consults so got it no, that's yeah it. yeah um, okay Therese so where can we find you yeah my website is happymamahealthybaby.co and um my instagram is at it's happymamahealthybaby but there's a like a period so happy.mama.healthy.baby <laughs> perfect yeah um, and then you are in, where are you based out of? I'm based out of Omaha, Nebraska. Nebraska. So yes. And I do, I do one-on-one -on -one consults there in person. I can do one-on-one -on -one consults virtually anywhere in the United States. Oh. Um, yeah. And I do take some insurances. It's on my website, but um, I always recommend in person. It's just like, it's so much better, but I mean, in this day and age some women are comfortable with that <laughs> and then some people also just don't have that um resource you know like maybe there's not a lactation consultant near them or um yeah so i do offer that virtually and i am um i'm really excited i'm coming out with a course in august that will be um right now i teach in-person breastfeeding classes and um, newborn care classes and so my course is going to be breastfeeding newborn care and postpartum care so kind of like the mother of all classes so to speak that's amazing and that's yeah. yes i'm so yeah you know if you if you just found out you were pregnant you could <laughs> it'll be there by your third trimester so that's perfect yeah okay. i have one last question for you um, uh -huh. 
everyone who comes on the Human Experience Podcast, what makes you human? Yeah, I love that question. I've actually been thinking about it a lot. Um, I think that, and this is just pertaining to my life right now, I think the ability to affect change in our environment makes us human. I think that a lot of times we carry around things that we don't need to be carrying around from our past and then we're doing so much work holding on to those things that we become a victim to our current circumstances you know like i don't i don't like my schedule or i'm over scheduled or my manager is too hard on me or these people everybody needs everything from me and i don't have anything left and um but it's like we can change that i can change that i have the ability to to do that and set boundaries and um and pivot if something isn't working we can change it and so i think that um, is what I'm working on right now. And, and it's a uniquely human opportunity that we have. Oh, it is a privilege. I, I love that answer so much. Um, I can relate to that as well. Like just having played victim to my life, mm-hmm. right. I talk to my clients about this all the time. Like we are driving, um, the car, like we're not sitting. Yeah. We, we really do have the power and we often underestimate that. Like we just, you know, mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I think it takes like being there and then this like light bulb goes off and wait, I can change. (laughs) I have the ability to change my environment and goal of my life and things going on. Yeah. I love that. That Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much. Talking to you. Yeah. um, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for listening guys. Until next time. I wanted to take a brief moment to chat about the relaunch of The Nourished Method, which is my very own signature course that is 12 weeks long and it's going to look look a little bit different this time around. So if you were with me last year, I launched the Nourish Method for the first time ever. Thanks so much to the women who joined and gave me incredible feedback for this round so that things can be new and improved. Things are going to look a little bit different. No weekly calls. Um, I feel like a lot of the women got a lot of the answers that they needed from the course and just communicating with me via Messenger and the Facebook community. So that's exactly what we're gonna do this time around. We're gonna have a private Facebook community where all your questions and concerns are gonna be answered. I'll be in there every single day, so it's really no different. Um, The course will be dropped all at once. All 12 weeks of modules will be dropped all at once. You'll have the knowledge, wisdom, and tools that I have literally in this course. Um, You'll get trackers, um, meal plans, uh, supplement guides, um, grocery guides, literally so many things, checklists, like the whole nine yards, guys. I'm not going to leave you out in the dark. I want you to succeed. I'm also teaming up, teaming up with some really awesome women in the field when it comes to movement and meal plans. So you'll get set up with that. You'll get the whole works. Um, I'm really excited for this round, you guys. And the early bird special starting on February the 4th is $297, paying full. 
there's also a payment plan option for that and the price will go up at the end of the week of the fourth um, to 497 so be sure to sign up early and let me know if you have any questions on instagram Thanks for listening to another episode of the Human Experience Podcast. I always appreciate your love via Instagram DM, so feel free to take a screenshot if you're listening and be sure to tag me on Instagram. And of course, if you feel called to, I would love, love, love to see you leave a five-star rating and review so that others can hear my voice too. Until next time.